We're turning to our consideration this morning to uh, Paul's letter to the Philippians. And uh, there's one verse in particular that I have in mind, my text, but we will of course be looking at the surrounding verses. I'll read that verse to you. It's verse 15 of Philippians chapter 2. Paul writes, That ye may be blameless and harmless, the sons of God, without rebuke, in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation, among whom ye shine as lights in the world. Well, Paul speaks here of a crooked and perverse nation. The term nation actually, uh, in the original, means an age, or a time, or a generation. So he wasn't actually speaking literally of just the uh, political area, geopolitical area, nation where he was. He was speaking of the age in which he lived. And he obviously felt it keenly, Uh, And painfully, uh, he saw all around him the pagan practice. Remember, of course, that uh, they were under Rome, and Rome was a pagan nation. It denied the true and living God and had all of its false deities. And he lived also in the midst of a nominal religion, the Jewish religion. Yes, there were true believers. There were some. There was always that uh, remnant. There was always that little flock. There were always those that did love the Lord in the midst of ancient Israel, but by and large it was an outward and formal religion. And uh, he felt that this were the, were the times that uh, he lived in. And really, we could say, how much more now? How these things are reflected in our day. We really live in what is returning to pagan times. The uh, wholesale rejection of God in society leaves a vacuum which is filled by, really, kind of ancient man-made religions. They may not be formally going to those old deities that we read about in history, but people do worship and trust in forces that are nowhere to be found in the scripture, that are illusory, that have been dreamt up. And, of course, what religion there is tends to be outward and formal and nominal. So we live in verily, very similar times. Uh, Though it was bad then, I think it is certainly much worse now, and we're seeing a downward spiral, and I think we'd all see that hardly a week goes by where there's not a further departure from the standards of the Bible and the Scripture, and the things of God are cast aside. And so we can say, like Paul also, that we live in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation. And so Uh, I wanted this morning to really look at that theme because there is encouragement and there is help and uh, we shouldn't be too despondent or downcast though we seem to be overwhelmed by a tide of unbelief and rejection of God. Well, one thing we know that it isn't the first time and it has always been the case. There have been seasons of relative blessing, it's true, times of revival and reformation and of course this country was dramatically and significantly affected by the Reformation and revivals so that the very laws of the land were Bible-based and there was at least a nominal uh, acknowledgement of God as sovereign. And so we've come out really of that period. We are living in essentially a post-Christian era and uh, as we look back we can begin to see the comparisons. And so, as I said, although it was bad then, it's probably worse in many ways. For one thing, the nation 
and the world now sins against light. It has heard the gospel. The truth of the Lord has been proclaimed pretty much around the world. And so people are more accountable, you might say. In ancient Rome, of course, people were accountable, as their consciences would have convicted them. But they hadn't heard the explicit and clear proclamation. They hadn't heard about Christ. And so perhaps in some ways they were, had slightly more excuse. In point of fact, the, the, the uh, Roman Empire was reformed, really, as, if you look at the early centuries, by Christians and by their suffering and by the things they stood up for so that the conscience of the people was struck by the brutality and unreasonableness of the Roman Empire. But that's really another subject. But the scripture does indicate that things are and will and have got worse and worse. So Paul, writing to Timothy, in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1, he says, Evil men and seducers will wax worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. So there's that worse and worse. There's a downward spiral. It's been pointed out over history that uh, that downward spiral is such that there are periods of relative uh, godliness, but then it slips down further. Then perhaps, in God's will, another period of refreshing and blessing, and then again another downward trend. So further and further. Paul also writes uh, in the same chapter, in the last times, perilous times shall come. And surely we live in such days as these. So I'm just setting the context, really, before we look at Paul's uh, counsel for us, or the Lord's counsel, of course, through his inspired word. So he talks uh, about living in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation. So that word crooked, it's actually the same word, uh, original word used in uh, Luke chapter 3 and verse 5. And I'll just read that to you. And this is a prophecy quoted Uh, Every valley shall be filled, and every mountain and hill shall be brought low, and the crooked, same word, shall be made straight, and the rough ways shall be made smooth. So, crooked. There was a way of God, but it was distorted, and diverted from, and corrupted, warped, and winding, is what the word actually means. So there were those original values, God-given standards in man's heart. Really, on the Day of Judgment, we know that we will be judged, mankind will be judged, not only by the Scriptures, but by that light of conscience, that inner sense that God had given him. And, but man has perverted that and made it crooked and turned out of the way. He's wrested it from its original purpose. He's wrested life from its original purpose. Life itself was to be enjoyed in fellowship with God, in experiencing what he is and who he is. And that doesn't mean in just some extreme religious sense as the world understands it, but by the enlightenment of the mind, by the joy of understanding, by the sense of sharing, all of those values But man preferred his own way. And uh, there it is, crooked, warped, and distorted, turned away, uh, corrupted and offensive to man and God, perverse, that's what perverse means. Uh, And David, of course, felt it keenly. We read from that Psalm 120, 
And uh, it's comforting in a way, actually, that uh, godly men and women throughout the ages have felt just as we do. They felt the sting and the, uh, the, the pain of seeing a society around them that is so wicked. But when we shouldn't be hypocritical, we were just the same. We must always remind ourselves that we were no different. And so when we bring the gospel, it is with sympathy and empathy and compassion. And we're not judges of men and women. We are those who must assess and discern between right and wrong and uphold the standards of God. But ours is not to judge in the ultimate sense. But David felt it keenly, so I'm just going to read some of the verses that we actually read from our first scripture reading, Psalm 120. David said, Woe is me, so he felt the pain, that I sojourn in Mesek, that I dwell in the tents of Kedah. He dwelt amongst unbelievers, too. He lived among the godless, those who hated the truth, those who were carnal and brutal and sensual and dishonest and murderous and so many other things besides. David felt it as we feel it and he lived among them. You can think of Jacob also when he went up and dwelt with his uncle Laban and spent 20 years there in a godless age. They were idol worshippers. His uh, uncle, his father-in-law also, Laban, was a most unscrupulous employer. If you read back in the record, he changed his his wages ten times. He was always scheming. Uh, And David, uh, rather, Jacob had to live in that godless age. But I read on from verse 6 of uh, Psalm 120. My soul hath long dwelt with him that hateth peace. I am for peace. But when I speak, they are for war. Isn't that us? We're for peace. We want the best for mankind. We want to see all come to Christ. We want to see the kingdom of Christ dawning. But we feel, as David did, that uh, we're struggling against the tide. But there's counsel. There's an equivalent situation. There was for David. There was for Paul. There has been throughout the church up to our present time. And so we shouldn't think of ourselves as uh, unfairly dealt with, that we've born, been born into such a godless age, and how much better it would have been if we lived in times of revival and refreshing and blessing. But God's providences are perfect, and the times of our lives are just as he would have them. He's placed us in this age, for this generation, for our friends, our family, for this world all around us. But he then gives us a preparation. Those were really just introductory words, but let's begin to look at how Paul counsels us to live in such an age. I won't go over the first verses in too much detail. They're quite familiar to us, but I'm looking at verse 12. This is part of our preparation to live in such an age. So Paul says in verse 12, Wherefore, my beloved, as ye have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Now bear in mind that this council is building up to an application about how we're to live in this crooked and perverse age in which we live. So work out our own salvation. The meaning, I think, is quite plain. We are saved. We are born again. We are eternally safe. But that's not it. 
We don't just sit back and wait for that day to come when we're taken home. There's now the expression of that salvation. There's now the uh, developing of that inner spiritual life. We've been given it as a potential, as a real principle of life, the new life, the new birth. But it's to be nurtured now and developed and strengthened and protected. And of course the scripture is full of those exhortations concerning sanctification and holiness, I need hardly say. But Paul speaks of it here about working out our own salvation. It needs to be cultivated. Left alone it will wither. Rather as a plant. plant. I don't know if any of you try to grow any kind of plant, house plants, and we're not all green-fingered and so many of them wither before our very eyes and uh, they turn strange colours and they dry up and it doesn't work out as it ought to do. But often and mostly that's because we haven't given it the care that we should have done. We've not placed it in the right position. It's in a draught or a cold place or not getting enough sun or hasn't been watered or fed. And our spiritual life is rather like that. It has to be tended. It has to be kept. And if you extend that illustration to uh, the uh, harvest, which is often spoken about, of course, in the scripture, the point of the harvest is not the growing of it, it's the fruit, fruitfulness, the vine, always that point. We look for fruit, evidences of spiritual life, of reformation, personal reformation, good works, standing strong, holding forth the word, all of those things. Another illustration might be about keeping the flame of faith alive. Now, of course, we live in an age uh, where we don't have a fire in the grates as everybody used to do. Every home, 100 years ago or so or more, had a fire in the grate, had a coal fire. Everyone had some ability, expertise to keep a fire going. They knew how to start it. They knew how to feed it. And uh, as with a fire, you've got to uh, provide it with fuel. It's not static. It'll flare for a while and provide heat for a time. But if you don't uh, replenish the fuel, then it'll wither away. And it's the same with our life. So a fire, maybe it needs to be revived. Maybe you have a smoldering faith that's growing somewhat cooler. But it needs fuel and it needs air. You could say the fuel is the word of God and the air is prayer. Now actually, having considered that verse, it's not really optional. It's not just counsel. It is actually a command in a sense, if you look at it, because uh, Paul introduces it in verse 12. Wherefore, my beloved, as ye have always obeyed, not in my presence only, but now, much more in my absence, work out your own salvation. So it's actually a command. And we're bound to do so. Uh, and of course, it's that benevolent command for our own eternal good. So we need to do this. And uh, as we work, he works. Verse 13 says, For it is God which worketh in you, both to will and to do, of his good pleasure. And isn't that that wonderful blend? That cooperation between us and the Lord as we press forward, so the Lord helps us to. This is perhaps not a, a illustration everyone would understand if they're not mechanical, but I don't know if you know that when you press the brakes on your car or when you turn the power steering, uh, you're assisted. 
and the brakes is a vacuum system which gives you extra power. And if you drive a very old vehicle, of course some of us have been around long enough, we didn't have those things. And you have to press jolly hard on the brakes and turn the steering wheel. It was very difficult. But all cars now, most of them, have assisted power steering and brake assistance. And as you turn, you're helped. And it's quite easy. It's the same with this task of working out our own salvation. Don't think it's too daunting. Yes, there are personal battles. Yes, there are things that you will find difficult. And the Lord knows the degree to which you must exercise faith and press yourself. And although it might seem contrary to what I said, I just said, sometimes almost beyond measure it might seem that you have to resist temptation and evil. But the Lord is working with you just sufficient to make up that lack which you have, for it is God which worketh in you, both to will and to do of his good pleasure. But Paul here is building his argument to be able to see how we can stand in such hostile times. So he goes on. It's the same uh, piece of counsel, verse 14, uh, part of our preparation for these days. Verse 14, do all things without murmurings and disputing. So he's given us an overview. Working out your own salvation is really a generalization about personal sanctification. That's the overview. And then he comes to some particulars. Not all. This is not, of course, by any means comprehensive concerning sanctification. But for this purpose, he points out these. Do all things without murmurings and disputing. So take the first one. No murmuring. No complaining. Now that's very uh, relevant to us because we complain, don't we? We like to complain. We enjoy it in a sense. We like to have a good old complaint about all kinds of things. Now it's not to say that we're, we're to be stoical and not talk about things and share things and share our concerns. But we need to be careful that that doesn't spill over into complaining. Complaining at our lot. Don't we do this, all of us? Why am I in this situation? It's unfair. I see other believers, other Christians, they don't seem to have the troubles I have. That's complaining. And it's uh, murmuring. Do all things without murmuring or complaining. And murmuring is a good word, isn't it? It's that muttering under the breath. That sort of quiet, almost internalized complaint, murmuring. You almost don't want to bring it out into the open. You don't want to confront the issue. Perhaps at your place of work or study or in the family circle, you've been required to do something and you reluctantly assent to do it, but inwardly you're murmuring. You're not happy. You're a bit grumpy. That's so unfair. I'll do it, but there's murmuring. And Paul says we're not to. Do all things. There's no exception. So this applies not only to church life, but life itself. And the thing about complaining uh, is that it can become a habit. It's just a reflex. We're set off. We hear about some injustice, uh, particularly if it's against us or affects us, and we're off. We've got a whole list of complaints and we reel them out. But it's harmful and it's injurious and it undermines our sanctification. And it uh, will make us ill-equipped actually, 
is the argument here, to stand in this crooked and perverse generation. If you're complaining, if we're self-obsessed, if we feel sorry for ourselves, that's another one, then we feel sorry for ourselves at times. Woe is me. Well, David said that. But uh, we understand what he's saying. Poor me. Well, if you become like that, then you're really in no good position to function well in the midst of this crooked and perverse generation or nation. So there it is. We live also in such evil times, as I've already mentioned, and I need hardly lay that out before you. It's quite apparent, isn't it? We live in such evil times that there's no shortage of topics to complain about. Why has this happened? Why do we live in such an age where we've now got very complex and difficult decisions to make to navigate through such an immoral world? Well, it is a complaint, and it's a, you might say, well, that's justified. It's a concern. Absolutely. It's a challenge. Yes. But let's look to the Lord and how we might navigate through such times. He's put us in these days. And so there it is. The Christian has to face all of these things. But we need to be careful that we don't become negative because it will undermine our testimony and actually it will make us unhappy also at the same time. It will unsettle us and unnerve us. And we could, in these days, and I believe, no one is a prophet in the true sense of the word in our days, so we don't know what the future holds, but if we follow the trends, it is going to get even worse and more difficult for Christians. So we need to prepare ourselves, and this is the counsel that we're being given for us. So keep the murmuring down. Avoid it at all costs if possible. Uh, otherwise, we ourselves will become downcast and depressed, apart from anything else. And Paul adds no disputings also, and we can slip into this also. And have there not been, in national life, so many issues that have become divisive? We could name them, but we can think of those, some of them I'm thinking about. And there may be more issues in society, requirements. What should we do? And people have strong opinions and they fall into camps and there is a breaking of fellowship. Well, we've actually seen this. And Paul really counseled for this to be avoided. No disputings about issues that are not vital. Where's the charity? Where's the patience? And so this is a challenge for us. And although we've come through periods of un, uh, that are not settled, there probably are more. It's as if we're hitting great waves or great uh, bumps in the road. And so let's be prepared. Uh, uh, resist the temptation to dispute, to argue. Now Paul might also have had in mind, and I'm sure he did, disputings about religious matters, theological matters. And there would have been many, of course, in the New Testament days when the New Testament church was uh, begun and born and launched. And of course there was all the old Jewish tradition. So there would have been a lot of issues to work through and many are reflected in the New Testament. Uh, but by disputings, I think he means contentious disputings and schisms. He says in verse 2, that ye might be like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord and of one mind. And that really ties up, doesn't it, with 
what's being said here. Well, we could spend so long on all of these, but uh, uh, we need to move on. We need to avoid these. But I'll just mention this remedy also. It's very helpful, and it's Psalm 37, verse 1 and 3. And Psalm 37, I think, is quite well known to many of us. And the writer there, David, says, Fret not yourself because of evildoers. It also says, Be not envious at the wicked. But we could do that. Fret not yourself because of evildoers. There's no shortage of evildoers in our day. They could be our neighbor. They could be in our family. They could be the national leaders. They probably are in many cases. And we can fret and worry. Oh, that's terrible. Oh, this is, shouldn't happen. This is so unfair and unjust. And people do get worked up and they join movements and they protest and all the rest of it. But the counsellors don't. What do you do instead? And this is very beautiful, I think. Verse 3 says, Psalm 37, Trust in the Lord and do good. So don't fret. Just get on with your work. Get on with the commission. Preach the gospel. Live the Christian life. That's going to go around, going on all the time. Those early Christians could have fretted about the unfairness, the iniquity of the Roman system, the persecution that they experienced. But they looked to the Lord and they proved him. And so there's the challenge for us. But he moves on, and we must uh, cover these verses. Uh, but you can see that verse 15 is actually built on verse 14. And verse 14 was really an expression of verse 12, to work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. So Paul begins verse 15, that ye may be blameless. You see the connection. So if you are a disputer and a murmurer, then you might be to blame. That you may be blameless and harmless, the sons of God. And so these stages are there. So uh, we need to be avoid, not avoid them. Let's ask ourselves, let's be honest with ourselves, are we blameless? Now, of course, in an absolute sense, we're all to blame. In a, in a real ultimate sense, we're culpable for our sins. That's true. But uh, are we to blame when it comes to disputings, or murmurings, or arguments, or hostilities, or coolness between brethren, are we to blame? Is it our fault, actually? We're slow to come to that conclusion, because it's human nature, even converted, sanctified human nature. The last uh, culprit we look at is ourselves, but it should be the first. If there's been an offence, was it me? Our nature is to say, no, it wasn't me. Oh, no, no, no. It was this person, and they did this, and that was unreasonable. So my response is perfectly justified. And once you go down that road, you're building up a whole case for yourselves. So this is not the spirit that Paul is speaking about here. We're to be blameless. Was there a problem? May it not be our fault. May we be the helper. May we be part of the remedy. May we be the pacifier, the peacemaker. Blessed are the peacemakers. May we be that person. But Paul is saying that that ye may be blameless. So that's important for us. And also harmless. Innocent is another translation of that word. If we cause no harm or hurt or offence to brethren in the world, 
then we are as the sons of God. Do you see that? That you may be blameless and harmless, the sons of God. It's a characteristic of the children of God. That should be our demeanor, our nature. Blameless, harmless, not causing offense. It doesn't mean we're just a nobody and have nothing to say and we just keep out of the way just in case we might be charged with one of these things. It means that that's how our character becomes. And uh, we're not living in a, in a closeted situation. We're in the world, we're in the midst of hostile people, unbelievers, but we're to be blameless and harmless. We won't do anyone any harm. We don't have any ill intent. And that's in our old nature. And it can rear up. And we can be unkind and hurtful. And we may not see it because we might believe that we're justified in that. And that the person on the receiving end absolutely deserved it. Well, maybe they did in a sense. Maybe they did. But it's not for us to, as it were, press in the uh, pain and hurt on that person. So this is the counsel for us, blameless and harmless. And then it says, as I said, the sons of God, that's it, makes us a feature of our, our sonship without rebuke in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. So we're, we're without rebuke, we're not under discipline. Is there something that the Lord really should be disciplining us for? Have we wandered from the path? Have we been self-willed? Have we done something unrepented of so that we're now under discipline? Possibly even from the church, but maybe just in our personal lives because we haven't followed the counsel of God. So this is all preparation, you see, without rebuke in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation. You see, Paul now sets that situation. This is our preparation. This is how we live. This is how we uh, uh, navigate through such difficult times as we live in. And uh, he prepares us to be that witness. And we need to be careful that we uh, don't let our passions get the better of us. Sometimes you can feel those passions arising within you. That uh, indignity, that hurt. Well, we're to suppress it and pray, cry out to the Lord. So, Paul says that uh, we live in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation and now, and now the application. And now we're ready. This is how we're to live today. Among whom ye shine as lights in the world. He's got there now, you see. That's where he was headed. But you don't just shine if we're hypocritical, if we're not dealing with our sins, if we're not facing the issues that we've covered and just think, well, we can just be a witness. We can profess Christ. Well, as Paul says elsewhere, even in this epistle, that some did profess Christ out of envy or out of impure motives. It may be that the Lord will bless his word, but he won't bless us. So this is the preparation. We're to shine as lights in the world. So Paul sees believers who have these characteristics and these priorities and this spirit as light givers in the world. And our light is extinguished or diminished or hidden if we ignore this counsel. So rather than despair, 
and hide away from the world, we can make a difference. That's the point. Paul says it here. It was in those perverse and wicked and crooked times that Paul wrote this. And we live in similar times, perhaps worse. But we can be, must be, should be, lights in the world. And if it's extremely dark, if you go out on a night where there's no moon, no stars, cloud cover, then how much more clearly that light will shine. If you see a light, how much more precious is it? How much more vital is it? You can't see anywhere, left or right, as you walk the path, unless you have light shone on that pathway. And so our lights, in a sense, can be even more effective, even more important, even more precious than in more enlightened times. So that's why uh, we'd be to, to be ready and to prepare ourselves. We live in an age where people are spiritually stumbling, falling. You think of the drunk walking at night, can't see where he's going, has dulled his senses and falls against a wall or puts his hand down on a stone or twists an ankle or falls off a wall or something like that. People are being hurt. They look well enough on the outside, but inside we know they're being hurt. We know that inside they've got many internal anguishes and issues and uncertainties in this uncertain world. We know for young people, that whole world of social media and bullying and uh, expectations and images and unreality and the lack of true friendship and meaning, that they're hurting and they're in the darkness and they're stumbling and they're getting lost. But we can be the light for them. Do you know such a person? Do you shine any light? The Lord Jesus Christ said, I am the light of the world. And we speak of him, don't we? He is the way, the truth, and the life. We tell people that there is light. They may not welcome it, but we trust in the Lord. And how, what an example Christ was. He was meek and lowly. But he was the eternal God. He could have commanded, as he's quoted elsewhere, angels to deal with his enemies at a stroke, but he didn't. He bore it. He was meek and lonely, lowly. So he was also blameless and harmless. So different to the world. And in that same passage where he says, I'm the light of the world, he says, the thief comes to steal and to kill and destroy. I am come that they might have life, John 10, and life more abundant. So we're to tell of him. So finally, really, because this is all uh, building up to these points, how do we do this particularly and specifically? Verse 16 tells us it's by the word, isn't it? Uh, because Paul says that you might shine as lights in the world, holding forth the word of life. That's how we do it. Not by our own efforts, not just because we're decent people, not because we have a good job, or anything of the kind, but because of the type of people we are, harmless, gentle, without murmurings, without disputings, such people can then give the word. Now, there will always be the offense of the gospel. That's unavoidable. But may that offense be the gospel, not us. And if uh, people attack us, remember they're attacking the Savior. And he bore it all for us. So, of course, no surprise here. Holding forth the word of life. That's our purpose. 
And that's really the counsel about how we live in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation or age or time. And that's to be our purpose. And that's to be our mission. And that's to be our commission. But of course, as always, it's not quite the end of the story. It's, we never labor in vain. It's all for a purpose. The word of God shall not return unto him void. And the scripture always reminds us that actually the end of the story, if you like, is really the beginning of the eternal story. Always. This isn't just for a short, brief purpose in life and then everything is extinguished and it was a noble thing we did. No. It always has an eternal perspective. God sees it from on high. And so many of our predecessors, the saints that have gone before us, they're home. They're waiting for us. They've run their race. They've got home. And in various degrees, according to God's blessing, they have been lights. They have served another purpose. But it's here, really. Let me come to it. Holding forth the word of life, that I may rejoice in the day of Christ. You see? It's all for that great and coming day. And Paul wants to rejoice that his endeavors and efforts have been blessed, not for his glory, but that he had that amazing privilege. He was the chief of sinners, he said, and he meant that, whether he was or not. He believed himself to be so. And for what a wretched man he was, he said, and yet he had that high, high, high privilege of being an apostle. And rather than persecuting the church, he now was bringing countless people into the church as an instrument of God. And on that great day, what rejoicing there will be. Now, yes, there is difficulty. Now we're on the battlefield. Now we're tired. Now at times we're injured. At times we have setbacks. But we see that whole picture from that spiritual life that was given us, that our lives are used and useful and blessed. So that Paul says that I have not run in vain, neither labored in vain. And uh, he says, for the same cause in verse 18, also do ye joy and rejoice with me. So we're to have the same values as Paul. It's not that well, Paul was an apostle. He had a, an, a special opportunity. We don't, we don't have such opportunities, but we do. We have privileges. We may not be apostles, of course, those days have gone, but we're to be instruments and we're to be, we're to be light and to be help to others and to stand in these evil days. Or well, may that be a help to all of us this morning.